Now, Edward R. Murrow and the voices of President Harry Truman, Senator Charles Tobey, General George C. Marshall, J. Edgar Hoover, Judy Holliday, Sam Goldwyn, a profile of Hollywood, and more than 40 men and women in the week's news in the 16th performance of Hear It Now, presented tonight and every week at this time. We have uh, held hearings in nine states, and we have, I think, the general overall pattern. Now has come the time when the people must go into action. The winner is Jose Ferrer. The winner is Judy Holliday. America is on the high road toward military might. We now have in sight the military strength to deter an enemy attack. And by 1953, we will be able to fight an all-out war from the production lines. Hear it now. The Columbia Broadcasting System and 173 affiliated radio stations present a document for ear based on the week's news and the men and women who made it. All the voices and sounds you will hear are real and are presented as they were recorded in the heat and confusion of a world in crisis. Here is the editor of Hear It Now, the distinguished reporter and news analyst, Edward R. Murrow. There have been strange sounds in the news, but the strangest sound of the week came from a town near Oklahoma City and had nothing to do with the Kefauver Committee. Your ear is tuned to another man's ear. Jack Husband of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. When Husband went to be drafted, he told the doctors that all his life he had lived with a ticking sound in his ear. Thought everyone had it. Until in a wrestling match with a friend, he was asked, What's that clock I hear ticking in you? That's my tick, replied Husband. Haven't you got one? This week, the Oklahoma Draft Board, the state of Oklahoma, and most of the nation was just as surprised to hear that husband had a tick as he was surprised to hear that the rest of us did not. With the aid of a stethoscope, we recorded this human metronome. And husband, who has been accepted by the army and is willing to forget, doesn't know what all the shouting is about. I was determined that nobody would know anything about this until this come up. Well, then they started making making it known, my, my secret known. It uh, sort of makes me real nervous now that everybody wants to listen to it and everybody come up to you and say, um, let me hear the chicken, let me hear the chicken. Then I can't go to the cafeteria and eat and somebody <laughs> wants to spend most of the time instead of eating and letting people listen to my chicken. Sort of made me nervous at first, after they've made such an issue of it. But after all, I thought everybody ticked. I thought everyone ticked. There had been other strange sounds in the news. The constant pounding of congressional gavels mixed with the angry reading of scripture to gangsters. 
Hard-boiled gamblers giving senators and the gaping public comprehensive lectures on the intricate art of big bookmaking. And a half-admission by a few racketeers of, I thought everyone had a tick, that is a racket. And an awakening of the stunned citizenry who had no idea that such things were going on, who had thought most people were honest. Like the earth in spring, the nation was stirring. The specter of graft and corruption was not a pleasant one to behold. There were those who wondered how deep it went and just how all this had weakened the fiber of a people with the biggest battle of its life ahead of it. As Senator Fulbright of Arkansas said, This question of the moral strength of our people is not just an internal domestic matter. It has grave implications in our international relations. Without confidence in their government, the people will not make the sacrifices necessary to oppose Russia successfully. Professor Toynbee, in his well-known historical study demonstrated clearly how the vast majority of great civilizations of the past have been destroyed, not as a result of external aggression, but as a consequence of domestic corruption. A democracy can recover quickly from physical or economic disaster, but when its moral convictions weaken, it becomes easy prey for the demagogue and the charlatan. It is bad enough for us to have corruption in our midst, but it is worse if it is to be condoned and accepted as inevitable. Yesterday, the Senate decided to continue the Kefauver Crime Committee for another 30 days. No more public hearings will be held. The time will be used to prepare the committee's report and recommendations. This week was a combination of more investigation and at the same time, some very healthy soul-searching on the philosophy of corruption. And where do the committee and the nation go from here? Senator Toby, whom Senator Kefauver calls the spark plug of the committee, continued to study and learn and even do a little teaching of his own. Here he is conducting a reasonably successful scripture course for Lou Farrell, alias Frattle, of Des Moines, Iowa, a gambler. I'm reminded of a phrase that appeared in the great book, out of the little mouths they condemn themselves. All right. What did you say? Out of the own mouths they condemn themselves. That's a great famous quotation, sir. Oh, and talk- in my judgment, a lot of the things you said here, you- as far as I'm concerned, have condemned you in my mind as evading the truth and quibbling about little points. This is a senator of the United States. Yes. The Soros. Why don't you come through clean and say, gentlemen, I've nothing to conceal. I'm as clean as can possibly be. Answer any question you want to ask. I want to help you when you work here instead of hiding behind a fence. That's a wonderful speech. Yes, it is a wonderful speech. <laughs> See, I can but talk. Not, to, I can talk to you. I can talk to you that way because I got nothing to hide. Well, if you have nothing to hide, answer the questions then. I can't answer them if you if you want to put the words in my mouth. I haven't put the words in your mouth. Well, you're trying to. I'm asking you to answer this question. You can't do it. I challenge you to. One of the most startling revelations of the hearings, and particularly of this week, was that the racketeer, model 1951, is no longer a thug, is a far cry from the overdressed Capone-type gangster of the 30s and from the sometimes ludicrous, inarticulate Costellos and Adonises. It was a disturbing fact that young, well-educated, highly imaginative businessmen had forsaken their professions for the more lucrative field of big-time gambling. It was a startling commentary that Sidney Brodson, a member of the bar of two states and a millionaire gambler, gave the committee. Now, so you say your chief source of revenue is betting on basketball and football games. Uh, how about baseball games? Yes, that also, I'm sorry, baseball. Yes. Now then, how long have you been in, uh, in the wagering business? 
I would guess uh, about uh, seven years. Uh, what would you say your net worth is uh, today? Quarter of a million dollars. What would you say would uh, be the in the aggregate the largest amount that you've had in a year? In a year? Yes. Well, this is strictly an estimate. I would guess it must run a million dollars. Million dollars. What would you say your average bet on a basketball game would be? Oh, it might. The average bet would be about two thousand dollars. About two thousand dollars a game. Yes. Now, in in uh, selecting the uh, games that. Uh, you are to bet on, do you have any preference as to the section of the country or the garden games? Or... I've tried to stay away from the garden games. You try to stay away from the garden games. And for what reason? Because long before the scandal ever broke, I realized just from looking at the results that they were abnormal. You realized that uh, something was going wrong with the garden games? Yes. You, you have been... It's been going on for a number of years, and as a matter of fact... Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there are a number of teams that have not come under suspicion whom I suspect. On Monday, one of the most experienced students of American crime, Judge Samuel Leibowitz of New York, appeared as a witness, said that even he had been shocked by what he had heard from Mr. Brodson. There you had a man who was a graduate of two universities, I believe, a lawyer, a handsome man, a man of nice presence, an articulate man, a man of quite some charm, at least uh, the charm went over the air and into my living room on the television set. And it's really shocking that the youth of our country might get the impression that that's the proper way to live, that a university man, a college graduate, needn't go to work, needn't practice his profession, but should hire an office somewhere in some city with some gangster at his elbow and live the life of Riley on the fruits of gambling. And Judge Leibowitz went on to say that he knew that gambling had corrupted his own New York, thought he knew the reason. It is fair to estimate that at least $25 million in grant has been paid out to the venal members of the police department so that the gambling racket can flourish. It's been going, going on for more, more years than we care to admit. And J. Edgar Hoover, director of the FBI, was another witness of the closing week of the committee, said that his organization would do all it could, but basically it was a local issue. J. Edgar Hoover. I believe that in any town where gambling flourishes, local gambling czars can be found. The fundamental solution lies in the aroused and awakened citizens, militantly demanding the action which will eliminate the gambling czar, the crook, and the venal politician. Blast the foundation of the local gambling czar by vigorously enforcing the statutes against gambling without fear or without favor. And he will collapse. And like a house of cards, the vast pyramid of gambling will collapse. Throughout the hearings, the blue ribbon for best of breed or worst of breed had gone to Frank Costello. Last week, there was talk by the committee of deportation charges. This week, Attorney General J. Howard McGrath, who would conduct any such deportation proceedings, said this. It is obvious that even if Mr. Costello were still an alien, he could not be deported under the existing laws of our country, since he was neither sentenced to imprisonment for more than one year for a crime involving moral turpitude, 
committed within five years after his entry into the United States, nor has he been so sentenced twice for such a crime at any time since his entry. It should also be emphasized that contrary to an apparently common misunderstanding of the law, denaturalization itself, regardless of the ground upon which it may be based, is not and never has been a ground for deportation under the law. Not since Senator Thomas Walsh of Montana plotted his way through the polluted oils of Teapot Dome had any congressional committee created such public interest as the Senate Crime Committee. Its five senators, Kefauver, O'Connor, Hunt, Wiley, and Toby, had operated as a team, had done their job well, and more than that, had permitted the miracle of television to give the American people a class in government and civics, which might produce results far, far greater than the mere exposure of crime. On Tuesday, the final public gavel wrapped, and Chief Counsel Halley and the committee retired to closed chambers to prepare their final report. This was the time for evaluation. Republican member Wiley said this. This uh, committee has alerted America. It has awakened, I think, as suggested by one witness, the women of America to their responsibilities. And as, as was said, when you can awaken the women of America, you don't have to fear about America. And Chairman Kefauver had this to say. We have uh, held hearings in nine states uh, where we considered the most important places to have hearings. And we have, I think, the general overall pattern. I think now has come the time when the people upon whom, after all, good law enforcement must rest, must go into, and they are willing to go into action. And Senator Charles Tobey, perhaps the most colorful Republican senator since Bora, said that the committee needed another year to finish the job. Mr. Chairman, I'm not willing to look upon this hour and this date as a time for parting greetings, even though it was said that parting is such sweet sorrow. We're just beginning, in my judgment, our work, and we're not going to end it this week or next week or next month. And the people I represent in this country, and the name is Legion, there's 150 million of them, over 7,000 have written me in the last four or five days, and 95% of those letters cry out and say, don't let this work stop. If we can't continue it on toto, then continue as best we can, but don't let it down. So in closing, I use this illustration. The car is running and hitting on all cylinders. There's plenty of oil in those cylinders. There's high-powered gas in the tank. And in Estes Kefava, we got a wonderful driver at the wheel. Why take it away? Move forward in the interest of the American people and redeem America. Don't tangle with Mr. Toby. Don't tangle with Mr. Toby. Or if you tangle with Mr. Toby, you'll be sorry. So strongly had the hearings affected our national life that our culture even seemed affected by it. Up in Harlem, a songwriter named Walter Bishop put the activities of Kefauver, Halley, and Toby to music and called it Don't Tangle with Mr. Toby. Mr. Bishop said he wrote it because... I've been watching the hearings every morning on TV and didn't get a chance to do any songwriting. So I finally figured a song should come out of this and wrote Don't Tangle with Mr. Toby after seeing him peppering those guys. I just hope Mr. Toby don't tangle with me for writing this song. Mr. Kefauver is real cool. Mr. Isle is nobody's fool. If you call to the stand and the question in you, 
Just re- be sure whatever you do, don't tangle with Mr. Toby. Don't tangle with Mr. Toby. For if you tangle with Mr. Toby, you'll be sorry. You'll be sorry. You'll be sorry. But Harlem wasn't the only place where the hearings had changed the habits of the people. In Winston-Salem, North Carolina, ladies who baked Moravian sugar cakes asked that the Kefauver Committee determine whether or not the erudite New York Times had committed a crime against the cooks of North Carolina when their home economist, Mrs. Ruth Acasa Emelos, printed an Easter sugar cake recipe which emitted the use of potatoes. Here is Elizabeth Hedgecock from Winston-Salem. I make no charges against Mrs. Casa Emelos in her recipe for Moravian sugar cake. She's a fine Winston-Salem girl, and if she has strayed from the paths of rectitude and swallowed her radical recipe, the good people around here will be willing to forgive and forget. But it is imperative that the truth be established for posterity. Otherwise, Marie Antoinette, who proved that cakes are not a subject for ferality, will have died in vain. Let Mrs. Casa Emelos make six sugar cakes her Moravian way, and I'll make six sugar cakes my Moravian way. Let her submit her cakes to the Kefauver Committee, and I'll submit mine. Let the committee then decide whether a crime has been committed, and if so, who put the fix on the mix? We asked the home economist of the Times to comment on this, but she declined on the grounds that it might tend to... In Washington, a tanned, smiling president was back from Key West said he anticipates no change in the status of Ambassador O'Dwyer. And he isn't going to fire Donald Dawson, a White House aide, accused of using influence to get RFC loans. The president said organized labor hasn't asked him to fire defense mobilizer Wilson. He still has full confidence in him. Mr. Truman has made up his mind about what he's going to do in 1952, but he isn't telling. On Monday, the president told the foreign ministers of 20 Latin American nations that hemisphere unity and the United Nations were the keys to our freedom. Our future progress, our very survival, lies in the defense of the world order of free nations of which we are a part. Powerful and productive as the Western Hemisphere is, it cannot make it safe by building a wall around itself. Instead of withdrawing into our hemisphere in a hopeless attempt to find security through retreat, We must concert our defenses and combine our strength in order to support men in Europe and Asia who are battling for freedom. But in a civilization where there is no one world, there was not even one hemisphere. The problem of Juan Perón's Argentina and the United Americas continued. And the Argentine president's announcement of last Saturday took a big part of the news play away from the Latin American Foreign Minister's Conference in Washington. Perón announced that his scientists, headed by Austrian-born Dr. Ronald Richter, had discovered a new way of creating atomic power without the use of uranium. He said it was done by a thermonuclear method similar to that of the sun. If this statement is true, Perron, who professes no friendship for either Uncle Sam or Uncle Joe, could add another dimension to the Cold War. This program asked two of the nation's foremost atomic scientists, Leo Szilard and Enrico Fermi, both instrumental in building of atom bombs, to comment on whether or not atomic energy without uranium is possible. First, Enrico Fermi, Nobel Prize winner, who first brought the possibilities of the atom bomb to the attention of the War Department. I do not know more about this claim 
than has been made public in the press. I have seen no details that would permit me to form a scientific judgment. My personal opinion is, however, that one should wait for a lot more evidence before believing that the claim is really based on fact. Next, Dr. Leo Salard. I do not believe at all the claim made by Perron. However, I should warn you that through long association with the field of nuclear science, I have become an expert. An expert is a man who, through long association with the field, has come to believe that what he cannot do, no one else can do either. This does not mean that you should get excited about the claim made by Perron. Who is fooling whom? I do not know. But the most likely theory is that Dr. Richter is fooling himself. But just to be on the safe side, in case something may have been discovered in the Argentina, I want to say something as a message to Perón. If indeed Argentina knows how to utilize thermonuclear reactions for peacetime production of atomic energy, I know many outstanding physicists in this country who would be very glad to come to Argentina and help develop this new source of power. Their terms are simple and modest. President Perón must enforce the Bill of Rights and re-establish the freedom of the press. The Argentine government has strangled that great newspaper, La Prensa. E.B. White in The New Yorker spoke for a lot of us when he said... The Prensa affair stirs again the recurrent question, how can the United Nations shake off its impotence and show strength? The free world is rocked by the suppression of an independent newspaper and does not readily accept the explanation that it is a domestic matter. There is nothing domestic about the death of a newspaper. To kill off a newspaper is aggression. It is as menacing as to move an army across a border. In Paris the deputies of the Big Four continued their search for a satisfactory agenda so that the foreign ministers can eventually sit down to make the peace of the last war. In our controversy over mobilization, labor remained outside the fold with little talk of a return. Markup controls were put on 60% of the nation's grocery list. Price Administrator DeSalle hoped again that this would bring food prices down. As for the nation's ability to make successful war there was a divergency of opinion between an optimistic Charles E. Wilson and a realistic George C. Marshall. War mobilizer Wilson said, America is on the high road toward military might. We are moving toward a point from a production standpoint when no nation should dare an attack against us. We now have in sight the military strength to deter an enemy attack. And by 1953, we will, if necessary, be able to fight an all-out war from the production lines and at the same time, supply more goods for the civilian economy. And Secretary of Defense Marshall, who last December stated that the situation then was worse than in 1942, reiterated the statement again this week, said it was worse now than in December. We had a great, great emotional reaction in November and December that the situation now, as I see it, is more serious than it was then. The confusion and apparent lack of coordination over the best way to end the Korean War continued. General MacArthur's offer of last Friday to meet with the Chinese field commander to end the war was rejected by Beiping. 
The United Nations plan was still in the draft stage. And there were those, including Walter Lippmann, who said that MacArthur's announcement had hurt that plan. And there were others, including Senator William Nolan of California, who said the Korean peace should be left to MacArthur, Senator Nolan. No other commander in all history has been faced with the necessity of marking time in the face of the enemy, while the United Nations Debating Society vacillates between appeasement and action, and while indecision grips the highest levels of the American government. It is time that the American people, Congress and people, be informed on just what really is our policy in Korea. It was reported that the Joint Chiefs of Staff told MacArthur to clear all future political statements with them before release. Secretary of Defense Marshall said that any major offensive toward the Yalu River in northern Korea would have to be a political decision made by Washington or the United Nations, and that as far as tactics were concerned, MacArthur would have to make his own decisions about the crossing of the 38th parallel. General Marshall. The question of any full advance north of the 38th parallel is a political question, has already been stated particularly with General MacArthur. Uh, the compelling factor there, the dominant instruction there, is that he will proceed in accordance with the necessities to safeguard the security of his command. That dominates his actions. In Korea, where the foe is said to be massing on the Central Front, the actual activity is slight. The mud of last month, which had been caused by the thaw, was over. And there had been two good weeks of fighting weather. But now the mud is back again, brought by the spring rains. Major General Robert Soule, commanding officer of the 3rd Division, tells of what our forces may expect. The spring weather in Korea will undoubtedly materially slow down our operations. There will be many rains which will seriously affect our air support. The roads will become muddy, the rice fields will be irrigated, and cross-country movement will be much more difficult. But it will likewise be much more difficult for the enemy. And this week on the Korean battlefront, there were the sounds of an experiment which hard-bitten old army sergeants of other days and land-hating old sailors would have revolted against and called treason. But it was done with the blessing and direction of the high brass and was termed highly successful. The Army yanked a bunch of G.I.s out of its 15th Infantry Regiment and sent them out to a destroyer for a little sea air. The Navy took a group of its young sailors and sent them up to this same 15th Regiment to learn about the Doefoots War. What you hear now is Colonel Moore, the CO of the regiment, greeting the Navy men. Men of the El Dorado, I'm Colonel Moore, commanding officer of the 15th Infantry. As regimental commander, I'd like to welcome you to a frontline unit. The most important thing of all while you are here is that you will learn and live with the American infantryman, the frontline combat soldier. Each sailor is asked what kind of a unit he wants to go with, and then they are assigned. I said, any other suckers for the 3rd Battalion? <laughs> All right, that's only three of you. Where the rest oh, of you want to go? I'd like a signal detachment somewhere. You want to stay with the signal outfit, huh? Yes. What's your name? Uh, Price. Everett Price? Yes. I think I'm up here at the top. Right. Okay, you'll stay with our communications platoon and regimental headquarters company. All right, uh, who's the next man on the left? Uh, Preble, where would you like to go, Preble? Second Division. Second Battalion. Second Battalion. Right, okay. I'll take care of you up there. I would like to be with the outpost. 
With the outposts. Well, yes. now, we have outposts in both battalions. Uh, down to On the way up to the front, they walk past the 155 guns, shelling enemy installations. Past battalion, the Navy boys finally reach company, and then a platoon leader takes them in tow. This is a different kind of war than these men of the USS El Dorado, a destroyer, usually see. They are taken as far to the front as anyone goes. Look down on enemy positions. Uh, right here to our front, uh, the smoke's sort of obscuring it now. You see the white building directly to your front. Right behind that, we re- had reports of some enemy tank last night. And to the right along there, there's an area where you always pick up a lot of enemy activity. And in the rear of that mound, there's a enemy chow line. They come down there uh, about 3 o'clock every afternoon. There'll be a large crowd of them, and they go back there to get their meal. A sergeant explains, these mortars may not be as big as your Navy guns, but they do the job up here. The sailors help fire the mortars. Enemy troops in the open. Across the Horn River, near a radio tower. Elevation 800, Shell HG. Charge 20.50. Fire! For three days, the Navy men stay at the front. It is listed as rest and recreation for men who can get just as weary of a warship as a G.I. of his job. The experiment over, the sailors were asked what they thought of Army life in Korea. First, Seaman First Class Kelly. This is close enough for me. And another sailor named Bronson, who said... I like it. Sure, I like the Army. I'd rather be in the Army. I sure would. Meanwhile, the infantrymen were enjoying their cruise on the destroyer El Dorado. William L. Yost has nothing but admiration for Navy life. I definitely had a good time. Navy really treated us well. Went aboard, took a shower, took a nap for about two hours, got up, uh, had a good meal. Later we had a movie. And then, of course, back to bed for a rest on that inner spring mattress that we're not used to. But P.F.C. Durwell of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, was glad to get back on solid, if not dry, land. Well, I'm afraid I wouldn't knock it much, sir. I don't, the water don't agree with me. Well, I'm an old infantryman. I think I'll stick with the infantry. In Korea, as it has always been in all war zones, army chaplains are called upon to do many things. Sometimes they are stretcher bearers. They help with the entertainment. They conduct services for faiths they never prepared for. They listen to the Dofoot's troubles and the brasses. And when pushed far enough, they've even been carrying a carbine. They are also stenographers for boys who don't know how or cannot write a letter home. Last week, Chaplain Aloysius Zelinsky took dictation from a wounded corporal to his father at home. The chaplain reads the letter. Hi, Dad. Here we go again. Things are coming along fine. It's slow work, but I'm improving daily. Just had a long talk with the chaplain, and he convinced me that I should tell you what I'm going to. You'll have to know it eventually, but I was going to put it off as long as possible. Now I'll tell you what happened to me. So, kind of brace yourself. My legs are pretty badly wounded, but in time will be as good as new. I lost my right arm just below the elbow. Right now, I can't see, but with the difficult, with the facilities in the hospitals at home, the eye doctor tells me there is a slight chance that they can make me see. However, I'm not really counting on that, 
because I have a feeling that I will remain this way. Well, Dad, there's the story. I hated to tell it to you, but I know that you would want to know it. For gosh sakes, please don't feel sorry for me. If you could see me here in this hospital and all the fun I'm having kidding the nurses and talking with the visitors and eating their ice cream, you would say there's nothing wrong with that guy. Send him back to duty. I've still got a heck of a lot to live for. And that, plus my faith, will probably make me the happiest guy around our town. You are listening to Hear It Now, CBS's weekly document for air based on the week's news. We continue immediately after this pause for station identification. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. This is Program 16 on Hear It Now, a full-hour review of the week's news, told in the actual recorded voices of the men and women who make the news. Once again, here is the editor of Hear It Now, Edward R. Murrow. Do you recognize this sound? It's a sound seldom heard. From Independence Hall in Philadelphia, the Liberty Bell. Because of a crack in it, the clapper can no longer be sounded. Instead, on special occasions, it is rung with a rubber mallet. This week, the Liberty Bell and Independence Hall were in the news. Now, this is the room in which the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States were both signed. This is the birthplace of the United States of America. Now, this is the famous Liberty Bell. This bell originally was cast in England. Independence Hall, where the American experiment was begun, has a problem all its own. The 201-year-old structure needs repair. It, like many another institution, is faced with shortages. Needs certain special lumber to repair the tower and the staircase. Here is the curator of Independence Hall, Warren McCullough. Our problem today is where we may obtain some good, well-seasoned, long-leaf, brain-edged Georgia yellow pine to replace our worn-out stair treads that are now not of commercial size. Today also, uh, some Idaho white pine for the tower of Independence Hall. We told Dr. McCullough that we were sure that in this richest and most bountiful of lands, there would be the lumber that Independence Hall needs, if enough people were to hear of the problem. May we repeat it? The birthplace of your nation's independence needs long, well-seasoned, grain-edged Georgia yellow pine and some Idaho white pine. If you have either, or know someone who does, please write or wire to Warren McCullough, Independence Hall, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Once a year, Hollywood goes through the ritual. The faithful fill the bleachers along Hollywood and Vine. A red plush carpet is rolled out. The old Baroque Pantages Theater is drenched in floodlights. And the annual pilgrimage to the Shrine of Oscar begins. Oscar is just a little gold-plated statue, cost less than $100. But to those whose careers and fortunes are made and broken in the motion picture industry, to be singled out for an Oscar award is the supreme blessing. Last night, for the 23rd time, 
They called the roll. The winner, George Sanders and all of our East. The winner is Josephine Hall. The winner is Jose Ferrer. The winner is Judy Holliday. Judy was in New York when she heard the news. At a little nightclub on 52nd Street called the La Zamba. She was sitting next to Gloria Swanson, who many thought would get the award. Listen to what our recorder picked up. An intimate moment. Miss Swanson and Miss Holliday. Judy, you must be excited about this. All day long, I had a feeling that you were going to get it. And I said, Judy Garland's going to get it. I, I don't yeah. know whether to feel happy or glad because I, I wanted you to get it so much. Yes, you said that to me, Judy. And that was very, very kind and very sweet of you. And maybe that's why you got it. The Oscar for the Best Actor of the Year went to Jose Ferrer, an extremely talented performer and a controversial figure, now that he's been summoned before the Un-American Activities Committee. Mr. Ferrer was also there. The award had particular meaning for him. You must know that this means more to me than just the honor accorded to an actor. And from the bottom of my heart, I thank you for what I consider a vote of confidence and an act of faith. And believe me, I will not let you down. No charges have yet been sustained against Mr. Ferrer. The communist issue is just one of the many problems confronting a Hollywood which is today nervously disturbed over this, television, and the cold hard fact that people just aren't going to the movies as much as they used to. Because of this, and because the industry occupies so important a place in our life, we should like to spend the remainder of tonight's program in panning our microphone over Hollywood, as it, with its annual awards, takes stock of its achievements during the last 12 months. Everyone in Hollywood is a star. There are less than 400 of them. The sometimes slighted but not expendable human commodity is the extra. There are thousands of them, though only 400 or so have a chance to work each day. On the second floor of a four-story building on Hollywood and Western, inhabited by doctors and dentists, is the central casting office. In the midst of filing cabinets and switchboard plugs, the extras are carefully cataloged. Chet Brandenburg, Chet Brandenburg. Chet Brandenburg, good taxi driver, also excellent on driving any foreign-type automobile. Bill Bowling, Bill Bowling. Bill Bowling, young swimmer and diver, also classified as young dressed man, with tuxedo, cutaway, boulevard, ski clothes, most anything that you might need. Lalo Encinas, Lalo Encinas. Lalo Encinas, six foot four, 230 pounds, strong man. There is much frustration, and at times, some compensation. Central Casting calling Jeannie Whitlow. Are you working tomorrow, Jeannie? Fox Hills tomorrow morning at 7 o'clock, weather permitting technicolor makeup for Director Goulding. Your costume will be furnished. You'll work with principal, speak omnis, react, handle, prop, sing, cheer, yell, react. You'll work in sarongs or scanty outfits. You'll have body makeup and wigs applied. Pay you fifteen fifty-six. Each year, Hollywood makes about 400 major movies. Like books, plays, and songs, some are good, some are bad. 
But with a $3 billion investment to protect, there can never be enough rehearsals. This is a sound stage at RKO. Now, Tony, you have a definite line. Bobby, give me the ad-libs off stage as soon as Tony has finished speaking. All right, here we go. Uh, property master, Senor McGonigal. Yes, sir. Will you fix the earring? Something, the, the pearl came out of the earring. Yes, sir. Go ahead. All right, while he's fixing it, we'll rehearse. Herman. Did you pan it over this way? All right, attention, please. All right, settle down now. We'll have rehearsal. Ready? Shh. All right, Taylor. So we've arranged for you to play a benefit in the magnificently appointed plaza room in the Hotel Parkton. All right. Six or eight blocks from RKO is the Studio Club, run by the YWCA. In this gray stucco building, much resembling a well-to-do sorority house, Youngsters filled with hope, ambition, and possibly talent can live for less than $20 a week, meals included. They live and wait and hope, like Alice Backus. I've come from Salt Lake City, Utah, originally, but I've been out here about four years now. It's a fascinating business, and I recommend it to everyone who is willing to put a lot of work into it and not just sit back and dream and... Wish that something great could happen. On the fashionable strip, several blocks wide and a mile long, those who have come up wine, dine, and discuss shop at clubs like Mocambo. Linda Darnell, like Alice Backus, has her problems, too. I'm working much harder than I ever had to do in Texas. I know a lot of people think, you know, the movie life is very glamorous, and thank heavens in some respects it is. But... You know, when a girl has to get up at 5 o'clock in the morning... You get up at 5, and maybe you get through at 5. The hours are long, but the pay is good if you're a star. To get to the top is everything. And to get there, it's as much a matter of mind as mechanics. This is a young writer, salary $200 a week, who's just asked an old hand, salary $7,500, for some advice. The first thing you've got to know about Hollywood, he said, is just this. You come up. Tell me something. How much were you spending back on Broadway? Uh, I don't know, $35 a week, I suppose. $35 a week. All right, how much are you spending now? $45, I said. He looked at me. He whacked the desk. You've come up. Hollywood actually is a slogan, a myth. Geographically, its significance is negligible. Economically, its significance is dwindling because most of the major studios have moved out to more suburban areas. Mayor Fletcher Bowron of Los Angeles puts his finger on it. To those connected with the industry, Hollywood is wherever motion pictures are made, or where artists, directors, or film executives reside or happen to carry on their work. It is a name that has far-reaching significance and popular appeal, but actually, Hollywood is a state of the mind. If Hollywood is in fact a state of mind, the movie columnists have made it so. With the possible exception of Washington and New York, Hollywood is the most reported city in America. Hello from Hollywood to all of you, and now for my first exclusive. Barbara Stanwyck, recently divorced after 12 years of marriage to Robert Taylor. One of the biggest contracts ever signed in Hollywood. Donna Maria Cochran, the eight-year-old daughter of a Metro-Golden-Mayor janitor. Errol Flynn is suing multimillionaire Duncan McMartin for half a million dollars. Sentimentalists were happy when Mickey Rooney and Martha Vickers announced a reconciliation. 
This morning, Peter Lawford arrived home from Australia, and if he and Charmin Douglas are still that way about each other... Today, when we're struggling for more of everything, money, power, security, we forget that beautiful things cost so little. Sometimes nothing, a visit with a friend, a walk through a country lane, sunshine, birds, books. How little that costs. Luella Parsons is far and away the most influential, sought-after, and catered-to reporter in Hollywood. Movie stars at times might offend their wives, but never Luella. Still, there are some independents. One is Bob Hope. I had a little accident. There was a sign that said slide area, and I did. And the next night, Drew Pearson came out and said, Bob Hope was injured in an auto accident last night and dislocated his shoulder. I predict he will see a doctor. Pegler came out and said, Bob Hope, if we can believe that's his real name. was injured in an auto accident while returning from a Paul Robeson concert, which he attended with Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> well, the winter came out and said, Bob Hope's car was shoved off the road by one of the 285 armored divisions that Russia has stationed near Palm Springs. <laughs> Luella came out and said, Flash, after 35 years, Bob Hope and his shoulders separated. <laughs> Christian Science Monitor said it never really happened, you know. Hollywood is a montage of smog and sunshine, streetcar benches and drive-ins, tourist maps, swimming pools, impossible traffic, attractive women, and flashy convertibles. In some respects, it is like its own movie sets, made for show. It has, as Bud Schulberg said, a split personality. This is the other side. Dory Sherry, vice president in charge of production at MGM. I don't say that Hollywood is a typical American community. As individuals, we are probably more emotional, expressive, extroverted than the norm. But that's in the nature of show business. I know that the men around me are stable, normal folk who work their brains out. My friends do not keep strings of women and little black books full of juicy telephone numbers, as visitors to Hollywood usually hope they do. My friends get up early, go to bed at a respectable hour... And they can't get drunk any more than a grocer can in Kansas City because they have to work hard the next day, too. They spend their vacations with their families, and they are concerned about where their youngsters go to school. They indulge in a normal amount of seduction and divorce and marriage and church-going and gambling and charity-giving. They are not a blot on the American social scene. And I think they've made an enormous contribution to their fellow men in entertainment. For those who earn their living in Hollywood outside the studios... The tourist trade is a major factor. Three million people come here every year to see the sights. And for $4 a head, you can get on one of the gray Tanner buses and for three hours take it all in, including an abbreviated tour of Warner Brothers Studio. You're going to see things inside of the studio that even after you see it, you won't believe it. You'll not get off the bus. You're going to go through the whole 90 acres right up on the bus. And you want to take pictures. Go ahead. I won't see you. This is really a, a typical Brownstone Street apartment in Brooklyn, New York. And then that wall to the right, right through the windshield, was used in a picture recently called I Was a Communist for FBI. And that's the Warner Brothers Ocean. Any picture you see made of, uh, of an ocean and the pictures made by Warner Brothers, now uh, you can remember that it was most of the scenes were made right here. If you're an out-of-towner and have the price, Ciro's at the entrance to the strip is a must. The featured performer is Lily St. Cyr, a stripper, dressed in mink.
Outside Ciro's, backed against the white stucco walls, the autograph fans and the inquisitive assemble. Our reporter caught up with one. How do you like Hollywood, sir? I enjoy it very much. Uh, we've only been here about six uh, days, but, but I, I like it. It's very nice. Uh, how about the movie stars? Uh, well, I saw uh, Jack Carson the other day. He's funny. Who's your favorite movie star? My favorite movie star is Peggy Ann Garner. I, I like her. My wife likes her, too. Yeah, we both like... Uh, Lassie, we like, too. There was a time in Hollywood when movie stars were more concerned about the measurement of their hips than anything else. The next exercise will be a reducing exercise for your hips. Now, take your right leg and lift it up and over. Inhale as you go up and exhale as you come back. Now, begin. Now, begin. One. That's it. Way over. Come on, a stretch. You're not stretching. Come on, way over. Now, breathe once in a while. Come on. One and two. Come on. But times have changed. The world has caught up with Hollywood. And now, one of the big concerns is the communist influence, real and imaginary. We asked Groucho Marx to comment on this. I think the uh, boys who were originally communists in 1941, I think those boys were really idealists who were trying to root for a better world when they found out that communism was no good. Those got out. And those who remained, I think they're in an unfortunate position, and uh, I'm afraid it's going to go pretty hard with them. John Wayne, who graduated from the B. Western, is now the number one box office attraction. He is also head of the Motion Picture Alliance much devoted to the preservation of American ideals. The Alliance has a membership of a thousand. Wayne speaks to them in Legion Hall. In spite of all the noise and ballyhoo over the country, ours is not a communist industry. Most of us are Americans, brought up in good American homes, the atmosphere of the American tradition. We do not want to associate with traitors or to have our names linked with the Hans Eislers and such vermin. Let me emphasize, we do not want to suspect our colleagues, but neither do we want to be under suspicion because of our association with them. Therefore, the MPA demands as a body that the industry purge itself before it is further shamed. Georgie Jessel once said, the movie screen is just too big to hide anything. Hollywood is just too small to hide anything. And so... It is no secret that the movies aren't doing the business they once did. Attendance today is on a par with what it was in 1943. Operating costs have doubled. And because of these two factors, the industry is pulling in its belt, tighter than it's ever been in the past ten years. Television, admittedly, is cut into the billion-and-a-half yearly box office gross. But like radio in the early days, the movies can't blame it all on TV. Here's what some moviegoers in Alabama and Kansas think about the current crop of pictures. I think, first of all, there's too much blood and thunder on the screen. I think we need more Betty Grable pictures. If movies are simply a mass means for escape, then I presume they're fairly successful. If they're an attempt to portray life, then I believe they're failing dismally. It strikes me as Hollywood, for a long time, has overemphasized their adjectives, colossal and stupendous, and, well, after all, how can you keep topping yourself all the time? Bosley Crowther, picture critic for the New York Times, sensed what's been happening for some time. Well, I think the main trouble is that movies, by and large, are now recognized by the public as routine. Most of our movies are as good, if not better, than they were 
But the formulas are routine. The novelty is worn off. They are old-fashioned now, unoriginal, unsurprising, and the public is wise. Not only Hollywood, but the moviegoer himself offers a contrast in contradictions. Admittedly good pictures, like The Magnificent Yankee, sometimes fail to draw in the crowds. Francis, the mule, grossed over four and a half million dollars. Perhaps the newcomers to the industry, the Robert Rossons and Stanley Kramers, will find the answer and recapture the peak audiences of 1946. Stanley Kramer thinks he's on the right track. I think that just Technicolor and just co-stars, etc., etc., are no longer enough. It had better be a good picture, and that's the only solution I can offer. Getting the story comes way, way ahead of the star. We have never had a star commitment in advance on any picture. I believe that's the striking power and effect of the independent. Not to be obligated to find two pictures for Sadie Zilch and two pictures for Len Thomas and so on and so forth in advance. We find the story and then cast it wherever the chips may fall. In many respects, Kramer is going back to the thinking of the industry's pioneers who used Hollywood's rustic abandoned roadhouses for studios and could turn out a picture like Birth of the Nation for $100,000. Today... A feature film costs almost a million and a half dollars to produce. Max Sennett, who weathered many a Hollywood storm, remembers when. We worked more as a team, you see. Everybody tried to help everybody else. In case we got stuck for an idea, we stopped trying to photograph nothing. We'd go out and play baseball or play the piano, do something, until an idea did come. We wouldn't be wasting film shooting in the atmosphere. Well, what does the future hold for the motion picture industry? Having lived through the Depression... Can it now live through television? Will it fight television, or will it marry with TV? And if the marriage is consummated, what will be the answer? Sam Goldwyn is far and away the most respected independent producer in Hollywood today. He knows, possibly better than anyone, the patient's condition, pulse rate, and cure. Will the patient live, Mr. Goldwyn? There never was a brighter future for motion pictures than exists today. The motion picture industry has by now had a fair opportunity to appraise the impact of television. My conclusion is that we have nothing to fear from it. Television has a most important place in the field of entertainment, but its economics do not permit it to show films of the type we can put on the screen. Television is going to depend more and more on the motion picture industry for talent, technical know-how, showmanship, and in fact for all the elements that make real entertainment. Our industry's leadership makes certain a marriage between Hollywood and television, and it won't be a shotgun wedding either. It's unnatural. My first 37 years in pictures have been most exciting. I am looking forward eagerly to my next 37 years in Hollywood. Will Rogers, who used to work for Mr. Goldwyn, said, I can't write about the movies, for I don't know anything about them. And I don't think anybody else knows anything about them. The exhibitor said he wanted better pictures for less money. The producer said he wanted better stories and better directors and better actors for less money. The actor says, you're not giving me a fair share of what I draw at the box office. The exhibitors say, we may be dumb, but we know how to count up. Give us pictures where there's something to count up. And Wall Street says, 
We want more interest on our money. Like Will Rogers, we don't pretend to know anything about movies. Hollywood as a community has long since ceased to exist. It has been swallowed up by the mushrooming association of communities which goes by the corporate name of Los Angeles. But it seems to us that the motion picture business in the past decade has slowly but perceptibly realized the somewhat staggering implications of being one of the world's largest marketers of ideas, has discovered that the content of its product is not a matter of indifference, that the consistent refabrication of a fairy tale, the continued exploitation of a formula, is not enough to satisfy the troubled minds of its vast audience of today. Competition for that audience, both in the realm of entertainment and ideas, is increasing. The leaders of the industry, as you have heard, are confident. But most of them are taking stock of this new situation. There is no law that guarantees the movie industry survival or continued prosperity. The competition for audiences and ideas is keener now than it has been. That's the way our system works. If we have the wisdom to avoid crippling or coercive legislation, then these various media for marketing, information, and entertainment, the press, radio, television, movies, will decline or prosper in accordance with their ability to entertain and inform. The people, in their wisdom or folly, will make the choice. But we hope that reading will continue to be a required subject. You have just heard Program 16 in the CBS series, Hear It Now, a document for ear based on the week's news. Hear It Now is edited and produced by Edward R. Murrow and Fred W. Friendly, and the CBS staff, which includes John Aaron, Jesse Zausman, Irving Gitman, Edmund Scott, and Joseph Wershberg. The Hollywood recordings were produced by the staff of radio station KNX under Jack Beck. Portions of the program originated at WTOP, Washington, WCAU, Philadelphia, KOMA, Oklahoma City, WAPI, Birmingham, Alabama, KFH, Wichita, WTOB, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, KNX, Los Angeles, and the British Broadcasting Corporation. Combat recordings were made in Korea by CBS correspondent John Jefferson. Certain motion picture industry statistics were supplied by Audience Research Incorporated. Edward R. Morrow can be heard over most of these same CBS stations Monday through Friday at 7.45 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is Olin Tai speaking. years, Red Cross has helped the victims of disaster, brought comfort to servicemen in camps and hospitals and to their families. Today, with the country rising to meet the challenge of aggression, the Red Cross has been asked by the government to undertake tremendous tasks. By giving generously to the Red Cross, you will help mobilize for the defense of your families, your community, and your nation. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. <laughs>